0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers. I'm very happy to have you here today. This podcast endeavors to explore a full-spectrum spirituality. That is, a spirituality that includes our egoic, personality-based being, and a spirituality that includes our transcendent, unified awareness-based being. And along those lines, I'm also, as the name of the podcast implies, I'm very interested in exploring the sublime, the numinous in everyday life. In other words, you don't need to run away to a retreat or to a monastery or to a cave to experience uh, spiritual mysticism. Um, It can be found in the grocery store. It can be found cleaning a toilet. it's, It's in the everyday. So uh, today, I'm bringing you a conversation with my friend, colleague, and mentor, Linda Modero. I met Linda a few years back and uh, when I was in a a practice community that she was part of, and I've attended a retreat that Linda led. I've co-led a retreat with Linda at one point, and I've really been in an ongoing conversation with her over the years about practice. And I'm really excited to bring you... Um, a a glimpse of that conversation in this episode. So Linda herself is a, a very seasoned dharma practitioner. She's the director and lead dharma teacher of her own sangha called the Sati Sangha but she also comes to the dharma with a long background in Chinese medicine. She was a practicing acupuncturist for over 20 years as well as a master qigong practitioner. As a bird's-eye overview of this conversation, we start out looking at the way that practice communities are moving online, and we sort of talk shop a little bit about what it's like to host and facilitate and, and guide people in practice community over online or in the online space. And from there, we, we open up and, and look at the role, and I would say the vital role, that friendship has on the spiritual path we look into the role of reflective writing or journaling and how that functions and works within the spiritual path and also we look at the vital role of conversation having good conversation with like-minded friends the kind of friends that you'd form in a sangha community how that together with friendship and reflective writing how all of these things help develop uh both joy, connection, and a deepening of view. And we sort of get into that towards the end of the conversation, looking at how one's view of practice, of self, of experience, and understanding of all these things, how the view can start to develop and broaden over time. And in the Dharma, or the teachings of the Buddha, view is one-eighth of the eightfold path. It's the the first limb of the eightfold path. And it tends to... Be defined as a understanding and recognition of causality but in traditional forms of practice that view is often expressed as right view or correct view or wise view and it it, it's it's presented often as a way that you know you either get it or you're not getting it and both Linda and i share a, a view if you will that view itself develops over time through exploration so it's not so much that there's a correct view to have, but practice helps support us to be in a process of examining our views and developing it as we go. So that's part of the overview of this conversation that I found uh, really to be very quite rich, and I hope uh, the practitioners and, and teachers in the audience will, will benefit from, from hearing our, our, our chat around these themes. But I also just want to mention that uh, in our sangha, in the Riverbird Sangha that Terry and I run, uh, Linda is now one of our guest faculty members. We're we're developing a small group of guest faculty to come in once a month and give a talk or presentation or facilitate a night on our Monday night programs. So it's a a deep honor to have her as part of the team. And uh, in many ways, this podcast is meant to serve as an introduction do Linda for you, so that if you're interested in how she speaks and how she reflects on the practice, uh, you can check her out either at her own sangha at satisangha.org, and there's a link for that in the show notes for you, or stay tuned for uh, her visit to the our sangha on the Monday night program, which will be the first Monday of July. So keep an eye out for that, and uh, without further ado, I now bring you Linda Modaro.
1: Linda, thank you so much for coming on the podcast with me today. Hi, Josh. It's great to see you. You too. So uh, I've been wanting to have you on the podcast for a while to have a conversation. You're um, on a personal level. uh, We've been... Sort of colleagues and practitioners and you you've actually been a mentor to me for a while i think for a few years there i was in a training program and you're minutes maybe but a okay. few minutes you're <laughs> you're one of my mentors and um in general you know i consider you to be one of my dharma siblings you're like my dharma sister and, and i i've uh, really valued our shared conversations over the years about practice and More specifically, you are now a guest teacher in the sangha that Terry and I started called Riverbird Sangha. And you'll be giving a a guest evening uh, teaching presentation in a few weeks um, in our sangha. But you also have your own sangha um, in California, correct? Or it's an online sangha. but And I thought we, we cleared this up just before we started taping. But I thought it was sati sangha. It's a mindfulness sangha. Um, but you've changed the name recently so where are you now with your own sangha formation
2: this is interesting how we can have more than one name isn't it um (laughs) i i would still say my sangha is sati sangha which is the kind of umbrella for which i then am developing friendships with other sanghas so for example, with Riverbird, which was summer's sangha, which has evolved into something really new and um, interesting, which I hope you'll say a bit more about uh, to Josh. But but w- in Sati Sangha, we've developed a, a close relationship with another sangha called Pine Street Sangha, and they're in Oregon. They have actual uh, location, and they've just come online due to the pandemic, as we all did, and something emerged from us coming together online. And we're now starting um, another group, another Sangha called the Piti Sangha. And Piti in Pali means joy, rapture, uplift. Um, And it really has that feel of coming together and developing a new friendship group that's going to be committed to doing certain types of work that Sati Sangha can't do, or Pine Mm -hmm. Street Sangha can't do on its own.
1: I like the name. Um, so Sangha, I should just say for listeners, Sangha simply means in my eyes, it's it's sort of a, a community of of practitioners that you kind know, of come together around shared values and an appreciation of of in this case, dharma practice, practicing uh, meditation and, and, and the teachings that relate to meditation. Um pity, as you said, is is the word for rapture or joy. And what I like about that is that I I've been thinking about that myself that there needs to be more joy brought into practice. There's, at least in Buddhism, there's kind of a, a stylistic uh, vibe, if you will, that tends to emphasize dukkha and suffering and the hardship of life and, 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 and kind of overcoming that. But uh, what tends not to be expressed as much is this joy, the joy that comes with practice. And so it's nice to hear that's, that's a, uh, being captured by your name. And but the the sangha that you're you're joining with this is this is with a, a teacher that um, you He's had also worked a colleague that you'd work closely right. with too right
2: right Nellie Kaufer, who's you know a long term you know forty year plus um, no I guess I shouldn't age her that way um, for you know thirty to forty year Dharma teacher um, who uh, like you and I I met her during our mutual interests and training in the Dharma doing further study together. And the affinity that happens, I think, between people that leads to a deep dharma friendship, these are something that um, are so important internally and externally that we change our lives around them. Um, So I actually have have had to separate from people that were past mentors and were past teachers that I took in very deeply because our direction changed. And so in that, this kind of opening has come up to be closer to the people that I feel an affinity with, that really our directions maybe are not exactly the same, but they're similar. And we can have a kind of trust that builds and develops into something Uh, until, of course, the unexpected rupture happens or conflict, which is part of getting close to people. That's Something that happens when we take each other in very deeply.
1: Yeah, no, the right. I I mean, I've I've experienced this sort of. I think on the uh, on the grand scheme, on micro levels, like I've been in situations where you know things have either gotten contentious or conflictual in a in a kind of a practice community, and and I tend to have a bit of a lone wolf style, where I just I I peel away if I if I I start to sense or smell things that are getting a little bit. too, too, too weird. Um, but the the emphasis that you keep speaking about with friendship, um, I, I'd like to hear a little bit more how you how you the role you see that playing in the development of of people's practice. Um, and it, it's a, it's an interesting one because when I first gave my my very first Dharma talk for our sangha the first theme was friendship as the basis of the path. And I kind of pulled out that, that choice quote that is attributed to the Buddha where he says something to the extent that uh, friendship is not just a portion of the path, it's the entirety of the path. And um, since you're seem to be emphasizing it too, how, how do you see the role of friendship playing in, in terms of supporting people's spiritual development and, and uh, growth?
2: Yeah. Well, that's. I think um, it's where the joy comes in. Um, although, like I said, the pain, and sorrow come 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 with it. But the the sense that um, that what develops between us is a type of safety, a type of being able to be honest and be ourselves, to relax and kind of go into. Um, let's say, more authenticity, I think it's very important in a polarized world to have those kinds of spaces um, and those the, those um, friendships develop. Because I can hear things from friends that I can't hear from people who don't like me, or maybe I, I feel have offended me, or I feel afraid of. But The friendship develops, I'd say, in a way where it happens that many threads are included in it. Um, So this, you know, kind of trust that builds and also capacity to be corrected or to be accountable or to actually have somebody who has your back but isn't just going to um, tell you what you want to hear. And those types of friendships aren't easy to come by. I, I think those are something that I have found they're earned they're long term, um, and being able to um, kind of stick with people and have history with people has um, been very important. But not the easy not an easy path in the dharma in the dharma world. So making it primary, I mean I'm in the right community right. The, this is the Buddhist dictum, so to speak. But I have to also live it and find my way through it and give it the importance and credence um, from my own experience.
1: And (laughs) there's, (laughs) there's, there's, a lot there. Um, And, and, and because I know you, and I know I have a sense of how you work with your, with, with students and people in your community Um, for listeners, they may not understand how the, it's kind of the, the, your online work is structured to support that kind of friendship so and i know that it's very okay. intimately connected to how you view and approach teaching meditation and the dharma so um first of all, i just want to echo that i have found the same thing that with i have a sort of a, a loose group of spiritual friendships scattered throughout the world people that i schedule calls with on a monthly to bi-monthly basis and check in and and he, and yeah, it, there's that it's easier to hear feedback around something that from a friend when, uh, you kind of value and respect them. And then they, they might be pointing something out that you're not seeing. And it, it you know, it it, 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 prompts me to be more open to exploring what I'm hearing rather than just seeing it as like a, a view that needs to be, can be dismissed and, and, and put aside. Um, but how do you how do how does how do how, does, how do friendships form? And I think this is a question many people are asking right now, particularly in light of the pandemic and having moved online. How do you see? How, how does the friendship get nurtured in your sangha, um, within your practitioner group?
2: Nice segue, Josh, as an interviewer. That that you put that together very well. Um, well, it, how I have seen it and how it, it works practically speaking in our sangha is that we have different types of conversations with each other. So I would consider um, even a dharma talk a type of conversation, right? You're you're talking to a group of people, there's an audience. It's not just you up there preaching something. And you're you're responding to people. And in that we've also found that doing conversations as Dharma talks and doing shorter conversations really helps people kind of enter what we're trying to say, that they don't have to track so long. Um, uh, You know, like all the material that we could ever know about friendship in, you know, 30 minutes or less or 50 minutes, you know, which is often a Dharma talk length. Um, So we do like these short 10-minute talks and conversations that set up um, the conditions for people to go into a meditation practice. And once they they listen, they can take up the prompt or take up the topic or the conversation or not, or just sit with whatever comes up. So that's like one way we structure a conversation to start practice.
1: Beautiful. I love the way you, you spoke about the, the the role of conversation and all of this. I've been thinking about the same thing in, in my, on my end, where yeah, I see that whatever teaching I give is just a is part a of a conversation uh, that will be carried on in the minds of everybody who's listening and then and and then ultimately become a a verbal conversation after say a meditation experience and discuss things Um, but one thing i i want to mention or or have made me draw out a little bit is that what the what you just described of giving a short talk followed by some discussion as, as a as a sort of a preliminary before going into a contemplative period of meditation practice. That's quite different from, uh, many the way I've seen this happen or be facilitated in more kind of meditation center type communities where the normal tendency is that the teacher might give a talk for 30 to 45 minutes or an hour. There might be a short break. Then people sit Mm -hmm. and usually ask question and answer after. Um, and, and you're right. It, it, you, you hear a long talk like that, and it, it becomes it's sort of an expos. Usually, it's it, it sounds a little bit to me like an expository essay. There's a thesis. There's three supporting points okay. that go with the thesis, mm-hmm. and and you're kind of meant to chew on that and and and, and kind of try to align your experience within what's being match said. It. It yeah, even, there's a matching. It match it. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I do that to some degree but I'm also influenced by, by the approach that you're describing. And so, uh, if you, would you say you're, you're not trying to have the student match what you're talking about per se, right? You're not trying to say, this is, this is the type of experience. You're not supposed to be in the present moment and and get in the present moment and keep yourself there. For example, you're opening, I think in your type of exploration of, of the way you teach, you're opening people into an exploration of their own experience.
2: Uh, yes, it, it's helping to fill out like my view there, our view there. Our our the view of our approach is that come as you are. Don't try to change yourself so quickly. That meditation practice will change you over time. But we don't necessarily want you to do all the picking and choosing of the Broken parts that need help, or we don't necessarily want you to hear something that just sounds ideally wonderful that came out of our mouths and try to make yourself like that because it doesn't work. Um, So this is this is part of the direction of having a, you know, you can't do it wrong meditation practice and that you can take our words in, but we don't want you to lose your critical thinking. We don't want you to actually lose touch with the conditions of your life, because they might be very different than ours. Um, you know, We see that every day in the news and in the world globally, and we're not all alike. Um, we have a lot of attributes and capacities and capabilities that are similar, but if we don't get to some of the difference and help people stay with their differences and stay with how they're seeing the world, I think we're doing more of a conversion therapy or a conversion meditation process. And we're really trying to do that less and to have the student, the meditator, the person who's you know receiving the Dharma, how do they find their way in it? Um, and in that loose and kind of more open practice, we have people start with conditions of kindness, of flexibility, of choice. If you feel traumatized in your meditation sitting by an unexpected thought or sound or noise, you can open your eyes, you you can move, you can choose to end the sitting. Um, and we want people to start to know their choices with more awareness and more explicitly not so like kind of buried in with the other stuff but so that they actually have agency during their meditation practice
1: so they know their their choices in the meditation more explicitly Mm -hmm. is that what you're saying yeah yeah um right i i mean having talked to you for a long time now over over the years and this is something i really appreciated in working with you was around how you know in a conventional way Meditation is, is is sort of presented as a series of, of teachings that are pointing to something and you're trying to the, the practice of meditation is, is about getting to the experience described by the teaching. Right. And if I were to sort of summarize in a nutshell, what I take from your approach is that rather than starting with the, the edifice of the of the, the scaffolding of the teaching per se, you're starting with people just connecting to their experience. And, and as people unpack and, and work through getting to know their own experience more clearly, they're able to then start to see how the teachings emerge from their experience. And, and I was talking to uh, Terry, uh, my partner, about this recently, and she's heard a, a Qigong teacher, and I know you've, you're have you well-steeped mm-hmm. in Qigong yourself, but she, a Qigong teacher said that the most important Qigong textbook is the journal of your own practice, Mm -hmm. which which Mm -hmm. sort of felt simpatico with with, um, aspects of your teaching. Yeah. Um, Well,
2: it's it's interesting, Josh. Um, I would say we're we're still doing the teaching. I mean, like when I ask people to consider these conditions, I would say, of kindness. Um, If you can't be kind, if you're really harsh and self-critical, can you be kind to that? that is the a, a Dharma teaching right of of looking at not doing harm and not killing off your thoughts and um, so it's kind of they're they're laced in the instructions to look at conditionality to look at dependent arising but if I use those terms of dependent arising, some people might not know what that means or know the, yeah, the cross their eyes, right? And, or I have to know the history of the chain of dependent arising. And I don't know who's new to the conversation and who's not, especially in a drop-in group. Now in my small groups, I might do it a little bit differently. Um, but in an open group, which is what we now have daily online, where people have the link, they can come in. I, I'm not sure where they're coming from. So I'm, I'm speaking a little bit of a different, broader language to that group than I am to a small, you know, long-term ongoing group.
1: One, other, one, one thing I'm interested in hearing about is, and I find this quite interesting as a kind of a, we call it a novelty in, in, in teaching, but to have, it sounds like you're facilitating a little bit of a conversation in response to the reflection that you as the facilitator give, Mm -hmm. right? So, so basically people come to your online group, you give a short little reflection about something, then there's some discussion conversation around it, and then it leads into the meditation. No, no? we don't.
2: Yeah. We usually don't have people talk right away. The conversation that I was talking about is usually between myself and another teacher.
1: Oh, okay. Okay.
2: So we have more like a collegial conversation um, rather than having people come in we, we are, you know, we really are teaching a restraint and a containment practice, aren't we? So in, in some respects, having people listen to us and kind of hold their own reactions to what they're hearing
1: and then sit with those. Okay. Uh,
2: yeah. So that's the
1: distinction. Right. No. No. Because I was trying to imagine, and, 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 and I think we're, you and I like to innovate and play with, play with different innovations in a trial and error way. Mm-hmm. But I was curious what it would be like to have a, a kind of a, a loose discussion around a teaching first and then go into a sitting, you know, versus doing okay. it after the sitting and, and what that would either help or hinder. Um, well,
2: I do that with more with with a small ongoing group. I might do that. Group, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: But af- but so after people meditate with you. <sighs> yes. What where where where, what where does the conversation lead, or what 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 does the group dynamic get into after a sitting? Do you have do you have time for where they reflect and journal, some or do they? Yeah, similar to your
2: sangha. I think we both have kind of taken that in and kept that as part of our um, approach, which is the emphasis that if you can verbalize and write something down and remember your experience you're going to be closer to it. Um, you're going to be more aware of it. And, you know, that is one of the definitions of sati, um, that it that you stand close to your experience. You become more aware of it because it just happened. Um, and that, that awareness will grow into more of an understanding of present moment capability of presence with your life um, when you do this kind of practice of, remembering and um, talking about it. So, oh, you have a
1: question. Yeah, Yeah. well, I was just gonna pause you just because um, there's a few terms that you threw out and I wanna just make sure that they're clear. So so, so Sati is the Pali term, that Pali is the the language that the early Buddhist teachings are preserved in, but Sati tends to be translated as mindfulness. And as it's translated into mindfulness, there's a lot of emphasis on present moment awareness. So in the meditation practice, people are trying to develop sati often under the guise of trying to be present to what's happening in real time, real time occurrences. And um, that uh, the way we both teach, I know we share this is that we don't privilege or emphasize like you, ha- you don't, we don't tell people that that's what they have to get into this present moment awareness we just encourage a receptivity to what their experience is. And the idea is that afterwards, by spending some time either reflecting, journaling, discussing it, there's a way to to build an awareness around things that may have been going on in the meditation that the person, I don't know, maybe didn't see as clearly or didn't spend much time thinking about or reflecting on or being with. But the idea is that through, so the, the word sati can also mean memory. Right. Or to remember, to hold something in in mind. So the idea there is that after a sitting, after a formal sitting, the practitioner could review and reflect back and recollect what happened as a way, as you were saying, to getting closer to it, getting to know it. As part of a dialectical process of over time, developing greater presence to things. In a way. Like, right. the, 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 like the yeah. presence, does, the presence doesn't necessarily ripen yeah. or appear in the moment, as as contemporary mindfulness tends to assert. It's something that emerges out of a development of understanding and familiarity, in some ways. Right. And, right, and you may not agree with everything I just said, so feel feel free to respond. And
2: well, I I would maybe say it's not just a dialectic. I I would say that you know because of the complexity of the word sat- sati sati and in Polly, that, that has so many facets to it. And it's often this dialectic between present moment and, you know, past or recollection or, re, or memory. But it also has this element of um, receptivity of, um, like I said, standing near to experience. And part of this process of really remembering and and thinking back over the sitting when you're doing that you're very present you're very mindful i mean that actual so it's it's like they're also they're not opposed they're also linked and together um, I, I think of dialectical as like opposing sides, you know, um, that get rub up against each other. I think these are like married, you know, they're married to each other, and that one one is done without the other. You're often having gaps or holes in your practice um, because if you're too mindful during the sitting, you are not letting yourself drift off a bit. Uh, you're not letting yourself actually let other material in besides what you're trying to be so mindful of. Um, catching that, in hindsight, helps your presence of mind and helps your, you know, being more aware of what happened. It just happened a few minutes ago. Let's let's see. Let's fill it out. But not just for the, I mean, it's, it's a practice of sati. But like you said, it's actually has a function, a function to actually integrate into your life that you want to be able to bring the contents of your meditation out into the world. It's not just to be a meditate better meditator on the cushion or to have, you know, remembered something that you had forgotten and, you know, you get a gold star. It's really, you know, it's really um, so that, oh, did you hear that?
1: Oh, okay I'm sorry I'm like motor I have, go by.
2: Yeah, I've construction going on outside. Um if it gets too bad let me know. Um but that that and I'm going to call it kind of a hot mess, but it isn't always a hot mess. But that our inner worlds are really messy. They're not organized structurally, you know, structurally like a flow chart. That finding the dharma teachings in that hot mess is crucial it's crucial to start to learn from your own experience this is a dharma teaching to find your way in the world and how you language things and your relationship to what you just went through um, and putting that into words experiences that don't have many words it actually develops sati and develops I'd say an h- ethical human being.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So many fireworks are going off. And- <laughs> I just, I just,
2: <laughs> the two. you can you, slow you, me you down went, or take no, me no, back. No,
1: no. You went through, you went through some really interesting things. Let me try to tease out a couple. One is that um, you made the point that if someone tries to be too mindful in their meditation, if their, if their mind, if their mindfulness, you could say, if their mindfulness is quote unquote, really good. <laughs> they're really they're really present to their breath. They're catching every occurrence—the the chirp of a bird, the itch of a mm-hmm. on their neck, the sound in the room, whatever it is. They're really catching each event in real time. In a in a way, their mind is not open enough to other kinds of experiences for, to come into the experience. And this is this is something that was like a real light bulb to me after. Mm-hmm practicing for 20 10 to 15 years of more straight and narrow mindfulness mm-hmm. practice where i would go on retreat or do my daily practice and really track present moment experiences and when it got good my mind wasn't drifting mm-hmm. i didn't have a lot of wandering thought i didn't have a lot of psychological emotional content come up it was just bare sensation and um but I would say there was, to, to your point, there was virtually no intersection between my personal life and my practice life. I, I kept waiting for that, inter, that that bridge to occur. I kept waiting for all that momentum of present momentness in my cushion time to translate into how I could speak to a friend or a partner or a colleague or something. And, you know, there was some bleed over. But it, 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 just, it, 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 but it was really, um, it almost felt contrived. Mm-hmm. in the sense that when I was in a conflict say talking to somebody I was like okay feel my feet but mm-hmm. I you know I didn't have a lot of, of ability to navigate the content of of the ideas or the statements mm-hmm. or the challenges that were coming at me so what you're and uh, what you're describing is and I can hear people saying well isn't that the point of mindfulness to be really present when you're practicing it you're offering a different model which is a looser form of practice where you Don't try to hold the attention so narrowly to something specific, but the person will be more receptive and open to letting themselves drift into any variety of kind of mind-wandering state, which tends to be like spiritually disallowed, (laughs) right? (laughs) Um, Because it's the, as you said, it's the hot mess of normalcy. It's the hot mess of the normal life of inner jumbled, not always clear, linear experience. Um, so so for, I guess on one level, that seems like a, in some ways requires a, a sort of developmental or a different kind of awareness in the student to be open to that in a way.
2: Well, it's a it's a different practice.
1: It's a a different practice. It's a different practice, but I guess one thing that is coming to is that a lot of people, I think, when they come to practice, think they're going to do the practice. Like I, I got a, I got a text message from my best friend last night. He said the stress at his work is so much it's affecting his sleep. He finally listened to a guided meditation for twenty minutes to help him with his sleep. So we can use that as a placeholder for the ways that people. I I often hear people hoping that the practice will bring some sort of immediate therapeutic relief, right. and it's not that you, that's not a, on a, on that's not that that's not available within this approach to practice. It's just that it's not so sp- like directly mm-hmm. sought after in a way to the exclusion of other things being explored. You know,
2: right, right, right. In fact, I I would even say it. I've been talking about it like this. Uh, Josh, lately, is that um, contemporary mindfulness often has the idea to um, uh, eliminate the story or eliminate your personal, too personal events of your life or things that really bother you. I mean, that's what people want to get away from, right? They want to come into practice to get away from the things that bother them. So, We're actually saying that there's a trajectory of bringing your personal life into your meditation. Something of value grows from that. And if you don't have experience doing that yet, it's going to feel risky or maybe like, who said that? I mean, I need a better authority than Linda Madaro to tell me that that's okay. Um, And that, that... People who have taken that path have seen what happens. And that's what I'm kind of trying to teach to as I've done that for twenty years, and something has developed that I would um, say is dharmic, you know, uh, along the Dharma path. Um, but uh, it takes a little bit of courage to bring your own personal life in. And that's why we really need these friends of, kindness, flexibility, um, you know, friendship, that they're so important because we can't do that alone. I really have not found that any person that I know on this planet can do it alone. They, they just, and I think that's why the Buddha talked about the refuge of Sangha. It, It is one of the three jewels. It's one of the three refuges. It's without it, a person is going to stumble quite quite deeply possibly um and there's of course on a continuum of how much sangha you need but i just don't think you can get the same practice from an app or a podcast or a book
1: right yeah i mean (laughs) i've been redoing a little bit of writing on this and i and i loosely suggested that guided meditations are the the, the, they're analogous to going on the same tour guide on a, on a city bus that every day. It's like you, you have the same prompts to p- look at that building and look at that statue and look at that row of ducks over there. And, you know, the same things get pointed out to you over again. And you just have this, this curated experience that may feel calm. And that, that may be, you know, appropriate at a certain point in one's life. But in terms of the kind of exploration and development of understanding that you're describing, it just won't won't happen. So there, there's there's two key, two, two points here. There's the reflection though after the meditation mm-hmm. and, and, and journaling about it, and then the conversation That's with safe. friends. And, and I want to kind of work through both of those a little bit because I find them both really, really helpful personally. And the writing piece, um, and there's many ways I can see the writing being valuable. I can think about how it would be valuable, but I'm just starting to introduce it. In, in, in our Sangha, um, mm-hmm. suggesting people either write after a meditation, before a meditation, or at some other point in the day, just to use writing as a way of, de- it's like another way to start to develop perception of something. Um, it gives you another angle on, or v- variety of angles on looking at something. But one of the things that has come up is that, and, I, and I'm sure you've heard something similar, is that when people know that there's going to be a journaling session after their meditation, there, there, there's a sort of a, attempt to want to do it. Correct. I and mean, want to be yeah. the good, the good yeah. meditator and the good journaler. And, and they, and there, there's the reporting that they say things like, you know, I, I kept wondering if I should re- try to remember that or, 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 or how am I going to remember that? Or how am I going to talk about that in the journal after And so there's a way that the consciousness of the, of the, the journaling to come sort of trips them up a little bit within their experience of the meditation. Um, And I wanted to ask you how you speak to that uh, with your students, uh, or if it comes up with your students even.
2: Well, I, you know, in one way I want to be a little cheeky and say like, you know, on our online group, they have, we turn our cameras off. We turn our cameras off during sitting. So people have the privacy to sit as long as they want however they want. I just don't want to see all of that. <laughs> it's like there's too many people. You, you, you make your choices. And then we give 10 minutes of reflection. And at that point, again, the camera's off. We're giving people like this really, you know, large amount of time, large amount, 10 minutes, but room to take notes, to not journal that day, to write more than they would, you know, expect um, to pick just something that they remembered, and I've had very few complaints about it because I'm not looking over them, <laughs> you know, like I'm not checking, are you journaling or how is journaling going, guys? Um, it feels like that freedom of doing it online has really opened something up, and I I rarely hear these days that much about. Um, that kind of side effect, not that it's probably not there. Um, but people aren't talking about it as much. I feel there's something about this privacy to do it in the way that you want to do it. Um, and we're all in our own rooms, our own spaces has opened that up a bit.
1: I like that. Um, and you know, as I was listening to it, it occurred to me that, you know, and I think a lot of people might connect to this where, they meditate, the the gong goes off, the, t- the timer on their on their app things, and they, they they think the meditation's over, they get off, get get up and just move into the next thing. And and I I did that for a long time, and and it can easily start to lead into a feeling like the meditation is just another task on the days to-do list. Um, but there's something about lingering with yourself after after a sitting and just reflecting on what was i mean the 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 hindsight you know as they say it's 2020 but you you, there are things you will see and and themes that start to emerge from your practice by being reflective around it
2: right i like that lingering um josh just lingering with yourself not malingering lingering
1: (laughs) right just just to, to lays around for a little while. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know? yeah. Yeah. And, and, and just like, cause, cause cause I often give that prompt myself, I'm like you might be writing and then you run out of things to, you know, you come mm-hmm. to the end of your pe- your sentence and you're like, I don't know what else to talk about. I can't remember anything. I just say, just sit with yourself, think about something else for a while. And then another like memory from the city might right. blow in and open up another like pocket or domain of experience that you can then yeah. explore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now, with the, the the friendship piece, you know, I really like the way you phrase it. You know, just just sitting on your own, I, I got the sense is you feel like it's just not enough, and I and I I'm, I agree with you. I think, in fact, a, a friend of mine that I met in Burma once said at the end of a long retreat, he said, "Whatever you do, don't do this alone."
2: Mm-hmm. He said, "This
1: this practice is too hard. It's too mm-hmm. hard." You know, I, I think he meant it more in the sense of it's important to have community to sit with and just to be, be together and, and not feel like you're alone in that. But there's another element in that conversation about practice really, not just about practice, but just things in general. Conversation itself brings to light discrepancies of understanding. It sharpens understanding. It, it creates misunderstandings. And it's it's in that it's in all of that that I think a, a clear focus of something starts to emerge, and I've been thinking this in like on personal terms of how, in some ways, my poor upbringing as a communicator <laughs> or non communicator you know, mm-hmm. having dysfunctional communication patterns from childhood, reflect themselves in adult relationships and it's it's only when when two people can sit down and really explore a misunderstanding that perceptual blind spots start to come become clear like in other words i can't see the blind spot when i'm by myself and i'm on my own head i just cannot see it because by definition it's what my persona can't see so it's almost like in the conversation or in the communication with another whether whatever the topic is I can start to hear primarily through conflict when there's a conflict at play, that that's usually where a blind spot is projecting itself into the dynamic that I can't quite see. Yeah. So I think this, this, the, the, the reflection from other and the, the conversation is, is, is really brings things to life and, 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 and brings them to life in a three dimensional way that I agree sitting alone just doesn't really touch at. Um so how do you how much time do you have with your group actually? How do you how do you facilitate the conversations? What kind of conversations do you see happening and 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 does that what I just said, does that map at all into the dynamics you see developing?
2: Yeah. Well, the conversation after a meditation sitting, we often call it an interview inter kind of hyphen tilde slash view, that we're now coming together to share our views. And this has evolved from the way I learned it in the sense that the teacher was interviewing the student to kind of, like you talked about at the beginning, get what was pointed at in the Dharma talk or a a, a certain direction of a higher knowledge. And I really see that it's come to be this um, sharing of views, where we can see where we agree, where we can point a few things out, we can talk about what's valued and devalued, um, and that things come from that interview based on what a person's talking about from their meditation sitting. And we really anchor the, the conversation in the Dharma. We're not um, it could easily feel therapeutic. If somebody's talking about their life, because they're talking about their thoughts, their feelings, their stories, their emotions. Um, But we're really looking for a Dharma teaching in that interview. And then we're trying to talk about the teaching with somebody. And that conversation is really sacred. It's, It's protected. So that's happening within a group of people that are watching that. And nobody else is commenting on it. It's not now a discussion. Um, And the people who are watching that exchange of views are learning from what they're watching. And they're maybe having some reactions to what they're watching. But they then take that back into their practice or it will come out in their conversation So, with, with a teacher or somebody who's trained in this approach. Because not just anybody can share their views it's really hard to share views. Um, We end up getting stuck in our own. Um, And I'd say one of the reasons I love teaching is that I'm often not plagued by my personal views. It seems that I enter a kind of different space when I'm talking with somebody that's really highly respectful and I have an ease and access and friendliness um, that comes from my years of practice. And so those conversations are really deeply nourishing um, and very rich. Even if there's some conflict or misunderstanding within them, they have their own parameters, their own structure, and we really try to protect those conversations um, to make them—I um, don't know—to to give them the qualities of of um, you know finding the dharma within oneself without being led in a direction that's not there not your own mm-hmm.
1: yeah i know we're talking we're kind of in a way we're we're talking dharma and we're talking shop too about teaching style yeah. um and to me they're very related in your sangha when you have the conversations is it a is it a dyad like one-to-one with you you and one of the students having a conversation Yes.
2: So somebody talked I say, who would like to share about their sitting? Um, And somebody would step up and they would just start talking about what they remembered using their own language, you know, um, having a conversation with me while others in the group are
1: watching. Right. So some of the feedback, I I basically do something quite similar, I think, in, Mm -hmm. in our Sangha. And the feedback I've gotten is that People, when they email me about a session, they usually point to the Q and the the, the discussion time. They call it Q and A sometimes, but keep the discussion as the most valuable um, part of the evening. And I, I think it it can also be kind of sometimes a little bit the most disorienting part of the evening because, like you said, when people start sharing their views about things, sometimes the views themselves can be right a little bit just uh, kind of unsettling in the sense that it shakes up your own view or Mm -hmm. you don't understand and I think there's also sometimes like the the struggle with the limitations of language to understand because we're trying to put language to something that's very intimate that that can also be a little bit confusing at times of what what does a person really mean but over the process of doing it I think I see a couple of things of great importance happening, where the people, other people that are listening, hear how another peer puts things into language, and that language has a way of bringing their the listeners' attention to things they may not have considered. Have, they start to look at things from a different angle, um, and then so there's a that's part of like the the conversation, the dialogue, creating supportive supporting a bit of a broader view about it um and then the other piece is that i think the more that people understand that they're not alone in terms of the kinds of things that they're experiencing that there's a there's a impersonal shared um i'd say it's impersonal experience but it it, that's not the right word but there's a there's a normalcy to the yeah. kinds of things that people go through. Because I think that's just one of the, the biggest hangups that many people have on the cushion is that they think something to, is, that they're experiencing is abnormally wrong. Right. <laughs> and, right. And the more you listen to other people talk about their practice, you realize, hang on, they're, they're describing the same thing. I more or less the same thing I had going on. This person on the right, had something that I was just experienced. And um, it, it can lead to a sense of, I think ultimately over or time coming into a greater comfort with, the, the varieties of experience that go on. Yeah. Do you see that same thing happening, or
2: you know, I I do, and you know, the traditional teaching of you don't share your meditation experience because you know other people's other people's other people will want it, or you know, it'll set up some kind of attention, or um, it will highlight your um, you know pride of a certain state that you would get into. I, I think actually what people have talked about um, the most in listening to other people's experience is that they start to respect other views and different minds. Mm-hmm. And they um, learn from how a person develops even if it's not close to their development or it's similar, that there's some way that all the teaching and learning is not coming from the teacher. That we're really saying, you know, I I teach adults. I'm not um, teaching kids, but that we're saying that you know most of us are grown ups. We've grown to a certain degree. We we come to the practice with a bit of knowledge and experience. And how do we respect that in others and not, you know, kind of take the role of a teacher as an authority figure. Um, Maybe we have certain areas um, where we know a bit more, but it really right sizes us. I, I really do feel that we can experience being interconnected more readily. We can experience, um, the the um, strengths and inequalities and um, you know we're not all equal and the differences um, that we have and we can actually um, grow in friendship with with people who whose minds work very differently than our own um, now we're not we're we're a relatively white sangha, um uh not only old women, but you know, a lot of older white women. We have um a, a variety of uh, of men who come in come in and out and but
1: we I should just, just interject. But, That's not by design, by the way, right? That's this, this just just the, the way the, the way the, it's ships fall.
2: Yeah. Yeah, the way it's happened. And you know, and I'm very aware and have done a lot of study on um the bias and you know what can we do to open our sangha? And you know, really, we're very—we um, have affinity for other sanghas. But I can't say that people of color or people with really radically different experiences are going to come in and feel comfortable right away within our sangha. But I can say that we that that they would be listened to and taken with equal um, sacredness importance in their own conditions of their lives. And that's what I can offer. Um, And that's what I think is, uh, you know, is something that's a common experience in our Sangha that people, that people feel that.
1: The anthropologist in me wants to ask, you know, because you no, don't worry too much Uh, (laughs) because you described how, people start to share about their experiences. And there's, there's, there's more of a, I forget the exact language you use, but it was, it was, there was a, I, I heard a kind of egalitarianism towards experience in the sense that anything was fair game. And, you know, it wasn't like the, you, there was like the shame about claiming you've had some attainment, like when you shouldn't be doing that. Like it just, if you had a bright moment, you could talk about that. If you had a dull moment or a low moment, you could talk about that. Um, what the chord that that struck for me was that there is in the cultures that I've the the contemplative cultures that I've been in there is this implicit admonishment about talking about any kind of mind altering big mm-hmm. mind blowing type experiences that that that's if you if you whisper anything about that you're just evincing your own egoic right. uh, identity with the state and therefore you're you're. You're not um, an unattached, unbiased witnessing observer. <laughs> <in a way. laughs> You've lost it. <laughs> um, but do you, I, I, having taught, like, this has been my side. I'm curious to hear your side of this experience. But when I shifted in my teaching to this more open, receptive style, and I, and I didn't kind of speak about trying to channel the mind in one particular direction or another, um, I started to hear, people describing what I would consider to be highly uh, developed states of samadhi, so sort of stillness and, and mm-hmm. calm um, with attendant parent, like altered altered perceptions within that in a way that I never heard when I was teaching a sort of straight up meditation practice. Um, and, And that I I use that. I I, want to bring that out in the conversation with you because there's a tendency to think that if people just sit down and are receptive to their experience, that their mind's going to wander endlessly, and that basically they're like treading water in a in a a, a tepid bath of (laughs) self-reference. in a way that's pulling that that out of my head um but but that it's not going to lead develop develop culture their mind in any way or develop any insight or wisdom around or compassion or kindness it's just sort of spinning the wheels and i just haven't seen that play out in my own experience sharing it but um have you noticed anything similar that that are, are people more forthright in talking about kind of altered states, and, and it, does that get normalized in, in the kind of community that you facilitate, mm-hmm. um, which I think would be a good thing because it it sort of it, it doesn't. I mean, you did mention the whole thing where one person shares something; it's it's the one Harry met Sally experience where you know there's one person yeah. hearing their experience, and then the other person says, "I want whatever she's having." Yeah. You know, that, there's that competitive mind, but. Um, and there's a question in what I'm saying, which is...
2: I got it. I got, got the boy. question. I got the question. Um, I I would say that, um, you know, this is a, a, a historical Dharma reference, um, the way Buddhism has come over to the U.S., to the West. Um, Wynton Higgins, who's a, a, a writer, friend, um, and really doing a lot of work on um, secular Buddhism, talked about the way Buddhism came over was like a bunch of bananas. It had a tarantula in it. And this tarantula of authoritarianism, xenophobia, patriarchy, etc., cetera, was, off, was built into the practices that came over. And there was a hierarchical design of you do this, and then you do that, and then you get this. And what I would say with this approach, the people that have the most difficulty are people who are trained in that. If you have a deep training that this is the way it should be, it will be harder for you to just unlearn that. And the people who don't have as much training in that or have it lighter it's much easier to sit with their mind. I don't get any complaints from them. It's mostly from the really strong traditional practitioners. Um, And that, you know, we also aren't overvaluing these metaphysical um, altered mind states. They are more normalized when you talk about them because you can see how they're conditioned and how they relate to states of mind that feel more mundane, or feel more ordinary. And I would say, on the whole, people have learned to value their more ordinary mind states in the practice that we do, and see the awe of just being human in our lives, of the way our bodies work, of the way the world works, of looking at a star... Um, star-studded night of um, the relationships and the depth of um, intimacy that we can have amongst each other. like that these the, these are the mysteries of, of life. And we have some really interesting experiences along the way, but they're not we, they're not embedded in a, in a system which says you know you got you know a, a, a number five for that one or whatever. Um, so that system is really part of what we're, what we're um, going against the stream in, in this practice of, of something that got very established and well-known and well-taught by famous teachers, by large groups of people. This is a really, I, I would just feel like it's a more itinerant path. It's of small friendship groups that come together that are really interested in each other's lives, worlds, and how they see it and and how they're going to talk to each other so that they can then go out and bring that friendship to their to their own friendship groups. And that that's how it grows. Yeah. So again, I, I dropped on a few things there. I, you let me go.
1: Um, no, thanks. No, that's, that's good. Um, again, I'm, I wish... <laughs> I would like to pause and then like go open back, up, to each, open one. Each, each little statement. You're um, very structured. <laughs> no, no, I, that's I, helpful. I, I'm it's not helpful. that structured. Um, <laughs> the you know, as you're talking, I I, I was I, my mind went back to a recent guest teacher we had in the sangha named Howie Axelrod who. Who just came in and was speaking. He's a creative writing teacher, and he's a writer himself. And he didn't really talk about meditation at all, but he he spoke about what it's how you know how you can start to per- start to think about perceiving things and putting them into words as a way to explore your perception of them. Okay. and and it what I liked about it was that, you know, a lot of people on the call that were present for that session, wouldn't have called themselves writers, right? So they, they just they just sort of took his prompts and whatever he said and just explored it and played with it in a very like mm-hmm. natural way. And it was universally very enriching experience for, for people to, to explore their mind that way. And it, it made me think of what you were said about how the, pe- the people that struggle with this approach to meditation the most are the ones that have been most steeped in a traditional practice where everything we're suggesting feels like it's, it's breaking the rules or, or, or sending them into the ditch. Um, but it, it really is about coming back to the primacy of experience and, and, and looking into that as, as the, as this, as the source. That's my view.
2: (laughs) I mean, that's my view. That's my interpretation. I mean, really Josh, um, to be more explicit about, like, that's what I'm drawn to, that's what my capacities have led me to investigate, that's the cherry-picking that I do of suttas, of, uh, you know, that the Dharma dharma was taught in conversations, like, that has deep meaning to me. Other people, it means something, but they haven't based their whole practice on it. So I do want to say, with the caveat of... um, uh, let's say I have a deep respect for traditional practice because I couldn't come up with this if I didn't receive some of those traditional practices. And this is where I'm in a kind of long-term conversation with where the Dharma's going. And I can't really opt out. I don't want to opt out anymore. But I would have to say, when I first came to practice, I kind of wanted to opt out of the world. It was pretty painful. I, I really couldn't find my place, and I didn't really, you know, um, want to be more involved in things that I saw riddled with greed, hatred, and delusion, you know, our our three poisons. Um, But I have a different experience now, you know, these many years later, that the world is something that I'm here, I'm committed to, Um, I want to look at it in more depth and stand closer to my experience of it, um, and that that has de- that's a development. That's not the way I came in. you know, So I've seen something change. And I think that that is a question that people have to bring into their practice is, is my practice changing me? Is it taking me in the right direction? Do I feel like it's going somewhere? Um, if not, maybe I have to look at other things. Maybe I have to bring something else in. And sometimes we don't even know when we're in an impasse like that. That's why we listen to other people who say, okay, I've heard you talk about that long enough, where like, are you gonna do something about it or not? Um, yeah. So I, I I I just I do want to be careful because I, I feel like it's very easy to say like my approach is better. It's it's very easy to say that to kind of fall into that or something. So I feel cautious around that.
1: I forget who I, it's probably best if I don't assign uh, ownership to the statement. (laughs) Yeah, Um, But somebody I was just listening to said something like a higher state of consciousness by definition is one that includes a previous state and adds something else to it. And so this isn't about like claiming ownership of the better system, but I think from what you were just describe- saying, and, and I, and I sh- share this myself, is that the approach that we're, we, we offer isn't one that negates traditional practices. It, it just opens up and includes them with, within a broader framework in the sense where it's a, it's a little bit of a cliche, but I say practices are tools, not rules. And so that you can use a tool of a previous practice of, of watching the breath or a yeah. of you know, a formula of metta practice or um, scanning the mind to the body or any one of these techniques, but not to the exclusion of having freedom. And you mentioned this at the very beginning of choice and the and the, the parameters of choice in terms of its ability to, to strengthen the agency of the individual to make better decisions about what they do with their experience. Um, so I, you, you may not be comfortable to say, I, I will say, I think it's a, it's a better practice by, the, by virtue of that it, it includes other things and adds something novel that's mm-hmm. of value. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe th- that might be a, a good note to, uh, I want to ask you about, um, which is the, how you see choice functioning. Because I think this is like a, a set, not just the receptivity to your normal experience when, you, when someone's meditating, and not just about re- re- writing and reflecting back on it, but explicitly encouraging permission to choose what to do puts, the, puts something in the student's hands and seed mm-hmm. that all, I think is often missing in, say, guided meditations or more formal, structured forms of meditation, where the, the teacher basically and the instructions. Take away choice by clarity of like, well, when this happens, do this.
2: Right, right, right. right.
1: So this so, is my what, what, kind
2: of parting, my parting words, huh, around choice.
1: Yeah, well, I know you wanted to talk for 30 minutes. I knew that wasn't going to be re- it's good longer,
2: huh? Yeah. yeah,
1: it's we're over an hour now. So we're we are coming to the close to the time. But um yeah. yeah. How would you what kinds of choices do you suggest? How do you frame choice in the practice? And then and then maybe speak a little bit about what you see that, how you've seen that develop in your students over time. Like what what is that, that permission of choice uh, garner?
2: Yeah. You know, I I often use an overused um, concept of self-care. That it is really important for people to develop care care is part of the Buddhist path, it's part of the Buddhist parting words, um, is tread the path with care, things fall apart, Um, that often people will come into meditation really parking their self-care, you know, in their therapy session or in another place, that it has to be integrated into where you're at now. So when you're sitting you will start to learn about what you need, um, not just your desires, um, but what's important to you. And we live in a traumatized world. Um, I think that if I look at it, most of the hatred comes from trauma, from some type of personal or societal trauma. And if we don't know how to take care of ourselves, Uh, can't learn, can't learn how to take care of ourselves in the face of this dukkha, Um, we will miss, again, a really large, important part of the path. And the, the meditation teacher can come with you in your mind. You know, sometimes you need someone to hold your hand through some of these states, or you need spiritual friends that come in and are with you internally, but ultimately you are going to have to at some point make a decision and find out whether that works or not or whether that's a good, good path of self-care for you, whether that's too indulgent, whether it's you know, um, not enough. So uh, at the front end, I think that somebody, even people who have advanced degrees in self-care, when they sit down with their mind and sit down with their with their selves alone to practice and hold relatively still, surprising things come up. Uh, it's our minds and our inner worlds are really interesting. And that knowing how to navigate them and knowing how to bring self-care and compassion in there, um, I, I think that's as important as, our, you know, Sangha friendships. It's really like that inner friendship with our with our own critical voice, with our own trauma and history.
1: Let if I can drill into that a little bit more uh, so say someone's sitting and let's say a a challenging dynamic of disharmony comes up that's that's kind of they're not with their breath now they're not with mm-hmm. their perch um and and they're they're embroiled in something you know a, a more a, a doctrinaire view might be. You have to watch it. You have to stay with it. You have to see its impermanence. You have to see the, the clinging within the mind that is pushing mm-hmm. it away or seeking some other pleasant thing. And only when you can transcend that clinging will you've come to peace. And so there's sort of a face it at all costs, hardcoreness that can mm-hmm. can sometimes be articulated. Um, and, and so I, I with the theme of choice, how do you how do you voice that with, 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 to a student about how they can exercise choice? What kinds of choices does the student have within that particular dynamic?
2: Mm-hmm. that That's part of what I'm going to hear when they tell me about their sitting. Um, we give kind of the light instruction that you have choice and um, you know, capability for your own direction within your practice. And let's just say, somebody couldn't tolerate that state of mind it was a you know something very difficult they didn't want to look at it let's just say they even got up from the sitting and went out of the room then i would talk with them about how that went for them and learn from the choices that they're making because we're making choices often we're not even aware of the choice we made to stay with something or to go away from it Um, and I have to hear more about how, how they were aware of what they did. And sometimes they might need a little bit more help in making choices. And then I'd have to come in and, and give them more support in that direction. But the, the idea that we have to look squarely at our dukkha all the time has put people into a lot of states of mind that, are dissociative, are depersonalized, and have been even more traumatic. And that is a whole arm of Buddhism that's being studied and developed by, uh, you know, quite a few people. So, I think my knowing that any person could come upon that kind of state at any time makes me a little bit more flexible and gentle with this idea that you have to go in there and dig, they come up, the state that things will come up and for you to be more prepared for that. uh, That's what I would prefer um, is that to teach people to be more prepared for what their minds offer. Um, Right.
1: And with the language of self-care, I would just, I I think embedded in that is, is the issue of safety. You know, it's just making sure this person the student feels safe. Um, And I think, I do. Th- I I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think the permission to to get up out of a sitting, mm-hmm. to open the eyes, to redirect the attention to something else, to go into a different practice, um, is not avoidant. It's 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 wise care slash exercising one's own safety, um, and having done having practiced in the way that you just sort of described and meaning the, the face-it-at-all cost way and, and experiencing the, the dissociation that comes from that and the, and the, I wouldn't necessarily say it re-traumatized me, but it clearly didn't give me a way mm-hmm. to actually work into the, 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 the knot that was right. part of that issue. Um, it, it required several passes. And I would say it required several years yeah. of yeah. several passes yeah. right. of touching onto it, going away from it having to come back again and then and 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 with this more open permissible style um knowing that i have choices around what to do with it has paradoxically let me be with it in a way that i feel safe and it leads leads to to more um insight
2: well and likely josh you're more aware of when you are avoidant or when you are you know kind of pushing something away or you know have have become a little bit too relaxed about something and and it really needs to be gone into. They th- think this is the um the you know the real nugget of ha- ha- helping people develop their discernment and that they are going to be able to do that, you know, discernment and carry that into their lives, that this is going to be really valuable uh because otherwise everything looks the same. And <laughs> You know, everything's not the same. It's changing. It's different. But it can really feel like it's the same. Some of our troubles, uh, challenges, problems can really feel like they're that like don't budge for a long time.
1: Oh, that's what you meant. I wasn't quite sure what you meant by things staying the same. They all feel the same. Do you mean the, the difficulties?
2: The difficulties or or even um, you know, something that we're supposed to pay attention to. Um, that we think, you know, that's the same thing every time we pay attention to it. And we're not noticing some of the subtle differences, what's absent, what's there. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's what I meant.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's yeah. clear. That's clear. Um, well, okay. look, I think, I think we could probably go on for much longer, um, but I am, I, this is, this is meant to be an introductory conversation sure. to then um, set the stage for you to, to join us uh, in a few weeks on our Monday night session. And I really look forward to that. Um, I just want to thank you so much for your time and and wisdom and and, and generosity and what you've shared. So You're welcome. Thank you, Linda.
2: See you in July. I
1: will see, see you soon. Season. Thanks Bye. so much.
0: I hope you enjoyed our conversation. I certainly uh, had, had a lot of uh, fun talking to Linda and exploring practice with her. It's like it literally is talking to an old Dharma friend. Um, and uh, just so you know as a listener, one of my plans for the podcast is to to revisit conversations with various guests. So So Linda will be one of these guests. Uh, Howard Axelrod's one of those guests. Bernie Clark's one of those guests. People that come back to the podcast frequently maybe once or twice a year and are part of an ongoing conversation and i'm I'm increasingly getting drawn to this so that the conversations i'm having really sink below the surface surface superficial details of what might come up in an interview and start to get into the deeper murkier material that uh, is quite rich and interesting and i'm already looking forward to having another session with linda when she comes back in the fall but um just a final note, if you are able, please consider supporting the podcast. There's some simple ways you can do that in the show notes. You can take a class with me and Terry. You can uh, join our, our sangha. You can take an online course or buy a book. And there's, these are all laid out for you in the show notes. So if you're at all generously inspired right now, we are very grateful for your support and thank you in advance. So for now, I wish you all the best. Take care. Stay safe. Stay strong. Keep practicing.